Hello and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. XNMO Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. The subject of this podcast is South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we are going tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. Before we start, I must apologize and warn you that the audio quality on this particular podcast was horrendous. Our internet connection was not behaving at all when we recorded. I've tried to edit it and make it as listenable as possible. Unfortunately, I've had to cut significant parts from the conversation because some of what Kali was saying was inaudible on the recording. Even with this editing, there are some parts that are very difficult to understand and we have some background noise as we are recording this with our young children in the house because of lockdown. Kali and I have agreed to meet up after lockdown ends and share a few bottles of Barolo and Barbaresco to record another conversation, in part to try and make up to you the poor quality of this episode. Even with all these challenges, we believe this episode is still worth listening to. We wouldn't post it otherwise. To make it easier to understand, I've spent hours transcribing the entire interview, which is available on our website. There will be a link in the show notes below. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is, at least for now, forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. Today on the podcast, we have Cully Lowe of Porcelainburg in the Swatland, a property owned by Buchenhertzkluff. I first met Cully in 2008 when he was still at Tilbuck Mountain Vineyards, now called Fable. And he was the first Afrikaans person who I'd met who swore as well as an Australian. If you're not familiar with Porcelainburg the wine, I suggest you pause this, find a bottle, drink it, and then listen to the podcast. It is not only one of my favorite wines from South Africa, but in my mind, it is among the highest in quality. I buy a few bottles every year. It is a unique project with, as you will find out, a very unique person at the helm. I give you Kali Lowe. I'm joined by Kali Lowe from Porcelainburg. Hi, Kali. How are you, man? Yeah. yeah, good man. For those who don't know you, maybe just give us a brief uh, rundown of your life in wine up until Porcelainburg. I'm from Bethlehem, where vines don't grow, mealy brandy. I grew up in a restaurant environment, basically, once to study medicine, I wasn't shocked enough, and then I turned to wine. Um, after that, graduated from Salamash, did a few vintages at Rustenburg with Adi, and a few abroad. My first permanent job was in 2004 at Kunlung. Started the winery there. Our first vintage was 2005. And then I moved from there to CMD. Uh, when Chris and Andrew did there, started doing their own thing in 2008. Uh, my first vintage there was 2008. And um, 2009, I started, uh, of course, I started farming. Market. Well, how did you hear about the the Porcelainburg project? How did you get? How did you become part of that? No, well, I was in in the UK um, pouring wine, and yeah, I stood next to Mark Kent for the first time. I'd known about him. Yep. Never got to meet him, um, and that was in two thousand and seven. And we were standing next to each other pouring wine at one of the swigs, swigs, and uh, yeah, met and. Oh, funny enough, a year later again in the UK, standing next to each other. And uh, yeah, in 2009, he gave me a ring. And uh, basically offered me the, the job to farm Port Maybe describe where it is and what, the, what is the property. 
Well, the, the funny thing is um, we actually, we also worked with the grapes um, in 2002 and 2003 at Rustenburg. And Ari came to the winery with this shiny rock and these baby bunches, really small berries, really small bunches. And uh, he said, this is from Porcelainba. And it was always this like sort of real mystical place in my mind. When Mark phoned me to tell me that I must come and look at Porcelainba with a vision of farming, it was like, does it exist? Anyway, it exists. Um, pulled in the air, it was, yeah, just before my second child was born. He was born about two weeks later, beginning of April. And there wasn't much. Eh? It was a, it's a little round hill. Um, it's between the Paderberg, Paderberg and uh, the Havoka Mountains, between the R44 and R45. And we mix to the Southern Tower if you ever drive on either of the roads and on the road. It's really easy to spot from there. And yeah, it's just this really extreme baby mountain. It's next to the Paderberg, but it's not decomposed granite, is it? It's, I mean, it's a very yeah, different soil type. Yeah, it's completely different. Eh? It's, it's all schist, um, a sedimentary rock. And this is mica schist, very similar to a lot of the famous wine regions around the world. Um, there's mica schist on Nicotra Sea, there's mica schist in the Euro, Lucien, and a few other places. Uh, it's a common horticultural uh, rock. and Base. Um, the thing that's different here, the farm, this place that I live on, and then small farm next to the Malinus and the Rupert's on the Rupert Road, um, mm-hmm. it's exactly the same uh, parent material, decomposed, just mica shift. But it's insane how different we get here uh, yeah, 450 millimeters of rain on the yep. Rupert's River Road between 600 and 800. Depending, I don't really, I haven't found it long enough to know the, the average, but yeah, yeah it's 450. And um, yeah, just the soil base. I mean, um, on the on the Rubix River, on the westerly slopes of the of the Castile Mountain, it's a lot more weathered. The schist is about 600 deep. It's redder. It's softer. On the Porcelainberg, it's blue. It's hard and it's shallow. Yeah, it, look, it looks quite slaty almost when you're when you're up there. It looks it's got that yeah, sort of it's, it's, yeah. I mean slate slate is the extreme the extreme of the sedimentary rocks. It's mm-hmm. slate and then goes to schist and then to shale and then to soapstone. All the layered rocks, all the family and the hardness is, is an indicator of, of the of the age of the soil. So um slate will be like the youngest is black and it's never been exposed to any oxygen. Um, the redder and the more decomposed the soil is, uh, the older it is. Okay. Um, or the older rocks are. Oh, that that would make sense to me in my brain. Don't let facts get in the way. <laughs> No, no, no. We are supposed to be um, working with the oldest soils in the world. Yeah. I haven't seen any place where they're mining slate in South Africa. No. Yeah. <laughs> but we've really got um, yeah, this, this blue schist on the on the port line back. It's not all over, it's in, in sections. It's a terrible place to farm, put it that way. 
I'm very happy for the gold mine farms. The Mediterranean varieties, they, they, they are weeds. They are considered weeds. All the rest of the noble varieties, um, they need to tend to them. But Sera uh, or Ganache or Simca or whatever, Mouvert, Medan, they just grow. And were there, were there any vines on the, on the farm when you bought it? Yeah. So there was an old block. Of Syrah, that's the, the grapes that we worked with. And I think Evan might have got some grapes from here for the first or second. The third Colimella in 2000. Um, and then we got some grapes from here in 2002 and 2003. The swamp was um, subdivided off the original um, Post-Lambach farm. And then a guy, Van Thunder, with a forklift business in town in the in, in the harbor bought this place and he made this little dam he was into uh remote control boats for some reason so he, he made a little dam for his boats and bought all every single one of the spin forklift tires to this farm i fucking had my day just getting rid of forklift tires but i mean <laughs> You normally work the soil and maybe a rock will come out and the next thing is like half a dozen forklift tires. <laughs> and they do that. Especially if they're in the wrong place. Um, it's not a forklift tire is durable, eh? Yeah. yeah. It's, forklift tire. it's not it's not like a tie on your car. Uh, it's solid. And yeah. when, when when like a brush cutter or something hits one of those things, you shake. Yeah, shit. <laughs> not what you're expecting. <laughs> yeah, not 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 what I was expecting at all. Yeah. Um, so, what's on the farm at the moment? What what are, I mean, you're, you've been planting pretty. Um, yeah, so I pretty... a bit there. So we oh, yeah. had a, we had a it was a beautiful block of grapes. It was five hectares of Syrah. I think when things were going well, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't ever on this property until I started farming here. That block would have been planted in the middle of the 90s and seven hectares of pinotage, um, which was like basically just let go. Um, there was mm-hmm. more fine boss in that pinotage than what there were vines. So that I that is the first thing that I did when I got uh, all the pinotage out. Not that I have anything against pinotage, but those vines, they were supposed to be 15-year-old vines and they looked like two, three-year-old vines. They were, okay. they, they were just craggy. So I pulled them out and nursed the 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 setup for some other reason looked beautiful except for the for the holes. Um, I have a neighbour that likes to burn and apparently he likes to burn. They burn wheat sort of around now April May. A lot of weed seeds and fungus um, that stays in the soil and the burning helps it. Um, quite a trying to preserve carbon and things like that. And I always shake my head at it. Uh, but I, yeah, I've listened to a few talks and things about um, about the... Uh, that was a Nokia ringtone, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, talking, and, about, uh, talk, talk, talking about the mid-90s, there's a, uh, <laughs> something right there from the mid-90s. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Um, yeah, so they've been, but this guy, my 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 one neighbor, he apparently started burning in his younger years. He started burning when he just harvested, and that was December. And then the guys in the, in the vicinity said to him, yeah, please, listen, uh, we still, I mean, the guys were still harvesting around him, and he was burning in stubble, and they said to him, listen, uh, you need to slow down, because uh, you might 
cause damage. Yes, since um, not not only burned down the Porsche Einberg Tiroven yet, but three years ago he, he started a fire with his combine on the Thursday, on the Friday, and on the Saturday. And then, uh, and he doesn't have any firefighting gear. And it's not the best, no, you know, good fences, my good neighbors, but Oaks that like their own place of life. Also, they're not great neighbors. But anyway, so this is a really cool, there's five hectares. Five hectares is a decent sized block of grapes. Yeah. So it should be about, yeah, if it is old school plant, it's probably 2,400, 2,200 plants per hectare. And then the newer school, narrower rows and into plant, 3,000 plants. Well, I did a count what we had left after the fire and they're still dying it's amazing you can cut the trunk and you can count in a year and um, back to 2006 now just that damage yeah so if a third of the trunk gets burnt you know a nice cinch um, it's lost and it's fake so losing vines in that old block so we're down to probably about thousand three thousand vines which equates to a hectare I have since interplanted and planted around that vineyard. So basically, we started in uh, 2010 planting and uh, planted 16 hectares. As I said earlier, the, the ideal was 40 hectares. About 2012, one of my neighbors offered us a section of land with a bit of water because the big thing here is water. We're uh, 250 meters above sea level. The river is at 70. And without water, Force Lambert won't, won't. I mean, a vine is a hardy thing, but the Force Lambert, it just eats. It's, it just consumes. Hungry and hostile and relentless. It's not conducive to farming. Um, it, it, yeah, it produces a few bunches and small berries and things. It turns into wine that's half decent. So you mustn't come here and think that you're going to be a big farmer. Anyways, yeah, so we got um, offered another 25 hectares there about 2012. And then 2013, another neighbor um, offered us another 25 hectares without water, just carried on planting. And about 2014, we bought uh, the Rio Road farm that was Mountain View, it's now the gold mine. And that was full of a lot of virus, vines, calves, and merlin and things like that. The first thing I did there uh, was clear the farm. Basically, we had about 2.7 hectares of sira and one and a half hectares of, of tin, of shinan, that I kept. And I cleared the rest. So we've got 40 hectares on, on the River River Road that's all in production now. Next year... My whole farm will be in production. It's just short of 90 hectares. It's about uh, like 86. But I have some pinto and Grenache here as well, about 10 hectares of each. And then the rest is all Syrah. And it's basically um, 60% SH1, the old Alephalurin clone. And then on the gold one, I have some 22 and 470 and yeah, some fancy clones there. Yeah, so we have just short of 130 hectares. Obviously, the big uh, production is, or the big cut of the of the harvest will be going to the Chocos of Lion, most of it, and then uh, probably uh, uh, like 100 tons um, plus the Bougainite Cliff, the Bougainite Cliff Sierra. And then I keep about 40 tons here on the farm. So it's 40 tons, which turns into some and uh, 28,000 liters, and I bottle 18,000 liters. 
Just a couple of questions. First, the pinotage that was used on Bosch Lemberg that you, uh, when you moved there, did you graft that over or did you rip all of the vines out, roots and all? No, the, the, the vineyard was in such a poor state. No, it was just a, a bullet bullet to the head was the only way. Eh? Yeah, so no. press, press the reset button like we were talking about earlier. Correct. And the, the Rubik's Rafia farm is on the southwest um, face of the Rubik Castile. How far away is that from Borsleinberg sort of as the crow flies, more or less? That's uh, mad. It's like between six and eight guys. Eh? Nothing. The other uh, crazy thing that we've also uh, Mark had this like surveil or survey done and between Goldmine, Borsleinberg and Bukenhout Kloof and he sent this to me and I opened the attachment and um, looked at this thing and I found it immediately. I thought, you look at this thing. Like, what? Exact straight line. Mm. From the gold mark to Bukenhout Kloof through the heart of Borsleinberg. And it's quite weird. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be disappointing, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, then it'll look like a sock. That's the best thing it's going to look like, yeah. <laughs> With viticulture, we often, I mean, talk about a marginal climate. And in, in some respects, in most respects, I would think that we talk more about marginal climates being in Europe and going more north and being too cold, too wet, et cetera, for viticulture. But it seems like you're at the other end of that scale. So it's marginal in terms of its viability for the barrenness of the soil and the lack of water. Do you think that adds adds to the vines in terms of um, adds character to the fruit or, or what do you think that brings to the fruit? First, this this young soil, when, when you break it, because we have to, we have to put a really big machine, the biggest machine we can transport on on our roads mm-hmm. down here, a D9. It's not. I mean, a lot of people work here for the D9, but yeah. um, that's the only one. The first guy that I had here said, "No, you won't work here because he's going to break his tools." And then um, I found somebody, especially this block next to the house. It's called Mispa. So. Um, in terms of soil, like soil type and roses, and, and those are sought after. But mispa is something that has um, has a has like a growth potential of one or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you, we had we had a, we had a soil group here with uh, with the Scotland Independence, and we had Freddie Ellis here. And I dug a tree hole on this farm, and I've sort of come to come to know where to look for what. And uh, I dug a mispa hole, and then I dug a nice green rosa, like green rosa. They, they numbered as well, and and then down, and then I have some weird sandy stuff. So the first hole was like the fertility or the growth index, or we were going to bank on something. It was one, and the second. Or which most of the land that was planted in was like a three or a four. You know, the bottom hole, which is, uh, yeah, this is a slot lump. That is maybe like a five. So um, all of the land that is, is below 50%. Yeah, and I think uh, definitely, definitely, um, obviously does something. But yeah, you have to work, huh? 
is the result of the small berries? Is that the? Yeah, sure. the, the I mean, obviously, no, that's the, the that's the reason. I mean, no. in terms of not being even, fertile. Even with even 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 with irrigation, I can I can irrigate these things. I can I can leave the tap on. The best yields that I've had here is six tons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grenache is a different animal. Yeah. Um, should, yeah. This is a Grenache farm um, because it makes me look good. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, good numbers. Yeah. Yeah. No, just, just in terms of yields. I don't know. In terms yeah. of wine, we'll see. As yeah, yeah. Goes. But Sira is a bit of a wimp. Sira doesn't like to take a lot of strength. But yeah, we planted I planted Grenache on the hardest, on the absolute hardest site on this farm. And and we sit on on the on the sort of more milder slopes. And um, what we're trying to do now is just to enrich the soil. Because obviously irrigation is not something that it's not something that I really enjoy. I mean, I don't I want to try and grow grapes as close to from the soil. Just, just to be productive and, 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 and keep the lights on. We need to add water when we can, and we've got water. But what uh, I've been starting about three years ago, been actively working very hard with cover crops, border planters, so we don't sow and we don't till and don't mess around with the soil, trying to keep the soil intact. And, yep. uh, and but the other thing is every time we touch the soil, uh, you know, a rock comes off. We try and leave the soil as untouched as possible and fine. Just enrich it with cover crops. And, uh, and what sort of cover crops are you using? Are you using sort of nitrogen fixes or sort of getting, trying to get yeah, organic? Yeah, well, in, or, the, or, in the cover crops, there's, there's, there's four, four groups that if you want to do it successfully and do it properly. So cereal is just carbon. So it's oats or wheat or anything, any, any cereal crop. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the matter. That's just the carbon, and then um, the legumes, which are the all the nitrogen, all the feed, and uh, there's a pile of them. So they they all make little nodules under the ground, rhizomes and whatnot. And then like a tuber, uh, like a radish, stretches the soil, and then it decays, and then just creates space. And, yes. Uh, it just makes the soil. With the rocky soils that I'm farming on, like air is not a problem. I mean, I've run off, off the road, run into a block of grapes, and it just disappears. There's no erosion. I mean, yeah, okay. Water just disappears. But it, it's, it's still a good thing. And then, um, and then the canola and mustard. So those are the four main groups. To me, instead of trucking in millions of tons of, we are doing a hell of a lot of mulching. Uh, yeah. That works. It does bring some mice that eat my dripper pipe. Um, it's a bit of a problem, but um, it conserves a hell of a lot of um, moisture and uh, yeah, a lot of carbon. But to me, sort of trying to grow stuff in your soil that you have instead of trucking in tons and tons of, of compost. Uh, you know, compost is, uh, is easy. You can just, but then I, I want to try and sort of as a holistic, as as holistic approach as possible. Just yeah, try and fix the soil or try and make it better. The least amount of input. Although I mean, if you put nothing in, you get nothing out. It is an interesting sort of philosophical decision one makes of what is is interfering with what 
what Mother Nature is trying to do and what is aiding it. And different people have different different takes on on where those lines are, I guess. Yeah, I've just never found uh, like a really. I don't know. I, I think if you can grow something in the soil, and because um, I think the, the cover cropping is 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 not old. Cover cropping is maybe fifteen years old, and there are some guys in the US, and and this is in places where we have a bit more rain, where you can do you know two different crops in a year, but. The difference that they've had in cover cropping and just with maize farming, Joel Salatin and a few other guys, I mean, it, it only makes sense. If you're going to keep on trucking in somebody else's compost, you know, it's not a balanced thing. Obviously, we need to get the seeds in, but one kilogram of wheat seed or something like that produces eight kilograms of raw material, whereas eight kilograms of compost is eight kilograms of compost. So there's some validity in it. We're on the cusp of turning both properties organic again. I was organic, but obviously with acquisition of the other properties, we've got stretched a bit. It's still a very holistic amount of the biggest pressure for me is, is wheat, especially on the Port Lambert, because moisture is worth brand, it's worth money. So all my all my foliar sprays are still 100% organic, the same sprays that I've put down. So I only use a little bit of herbicide, but that will be cut. This is also obviously quite a trying time because organic viticulture is quite labor intensive and this is not the ideal time to be sucking people around. There's not a lot of uh, structural support in the industry for organic viticulture, is there? I mean, or, or any organic farming. It is a, a very small percentage of, of the, uh, you know, the hectares farmed in South Africa are farmed organically. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. Um, there's yeah. actually quite a bit in the Darling, Swatland area, Popkalfontein is. Um, and then obviously in um, a place like, uh, but in terms of percentages, it's, it's minuscule. There are definitely places where it's easier to farm organic and mm. places where it's harder to farm organic. Yeah, I think somewhere like in the old world, maybe, maybe easier in a way. I mean, they get some more rain, they can... Right, but wheat pressures and things like that. Yeah, but I mean, with more rain, becomes more disease as well. So I mean, you're swapping yeah. one problem for for another. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'd love to go to the Loire again. The disease pressure there is is super high. So it'd be really, really? interesting to go back. Yeah, I, I, I was there early two thousands, and that was before I sort of got my head around that that side of things. I was just there to you know, drink as much booze as possible, and and I succeeded, yeah. which was good. So. No, no, I was there. I was there around the same time. I was there when we were there. No, actually, we were there a bit later in two thousand and seven. Yeah, two thousand and seven. It's actually also one of the things that I've incorporated into the Port Melbourne wine is to have something that because those guys mature wines in tanks for twelve months and then they bottle the wine, bottle ages for another four years, and then you buy a five-year-old wine for. 20 euros and mind blown so i never wanted to have anything you know in small barrels or any of that i thought of bigger like what they were doing bigger um bigger volume but reductive pressure wine and yeah that definitely uh, the loire is uh, an amazing place we mustn't tell too many people Kelly, because otherwise the prices will go up hopefully hopefully you only have five people listening to this (laughs) Mate, just quickly on the cover crops. I mean, I've been to Porcelainburg. It doesn't look like you've got super deep um, topsoil there. What do the bunny cover crops grow on? Yeah, well, it is the it is the bread basket, eh? Um, yeah. 
In, in South Africa, we grow about 580,000 hectares of, or 550,000 hectares of, of wheat. Um, nationally and 385,000 of those hectares are farmed in the western coast yes on very marginal soil so yeah. but, they're not, uh, but they're not planted on the top of mountains necessarily is what i'm getting yeah, right. I'm getting. well it's all around me yeah and yeah. um, there's definitely places that do better and do worse wheat all those cover crops that they, they don't need a lot of soil they live in the first two inches three inches of soil yeah, um, they need rain, and mm-hmm. that's the one thing that the Portlandbach does not have. Yeah, so you have to time it quite well. Yeah, we have to time it well, and um, yeah, I can just do it properly. So I have mm-hmm. a little notebook planter, some amazing outfit to get there. This year I'll only be planting oats. It's an ongoing thing, and uh, I, I can already see it. a lot of my neighbours. I, I spoke to a neighbour the other day, and he's like, oh, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "No, I'm in the tractor." Busy um, preparing to plant cover crops. Like, what are you doing? Like, no, I'm, I'm drop. Drop is like a time. He's like, how can you get into your soil? Because I, I tried and mine was like concrete. He's like, well, you've been doing no till farming for three years and it's unreal. Really, and the soil is it's open, it's soft. It's just been an ongoing uh, thing. Uh, um, yeah, basically, my sort of organic. Thinking started when I worked um, in the Ritzinger for Gerard Gobi in 2005. Um, and then I was very much um, winemaking inclined. I was a winemaker. Worked the vintage there and um, I was like, oh, this is wrong. I've always loved farming. I've been driving tractors since I was 10. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, just started just moving in that, just started getting more interested in, in the plant and the growth. There's an amazing Aussie guy, um, Brian Sates. I've been listening and researching and looking at things since 2005. Yeah, and just trying to looking at biodynamics, looking at all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of pros and cons with everything. Um, yeah. In the long run, we will re- realize that sustainability is more important than a logo. Because, I mean, there's a lot of, I can show you millions of, of organic outfits that are less sustainable than some properly farmed, conscious farmers. When you say sustainable, are you talking about just the, the horticulture and farming itself, or are you talking about the business as well in terms of, you know, Everything. for the farm to survive, it, it needs to reduce grapes to sell to reinvest in that next year's yeah, harvest? Yeah, and- I think any, 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 any kind of business needs to yeah. be sustainable instead of being labelled as, you know, there's a lot of organic farmers that fucking don't make a cent. Um, but they're organic for the cause. They are prepared to lose their crop because they will not spray anything other than the allowed stuff. And I think there's there's a problem in that. I think there are guys out there who have built their brand or you know, the reason why they're in a certain market is because they are organic. And so to step out of those those guidelines and lose that certification would be very detrimental to their business. Yeah, I think um, definitely the thing that we need to do is um, there needs to be a complete mind shift in the consumer as to eating with your eyes. If we can change that, if we're not all chasing this beautiful, sparkling, red and round object 
as opposed to being Apple and doesn't taste like an Apple. Uh, I mean, that would be that would be the that, that's the first thing I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the obvious thing is, yeah, as you say, like get, almost uh, like tomatoes as well, like those. Yeah, uh, yeah. They just they're just watery acid bombs. They're not actually taste like anything, but they look beautiful. Now, obviously, they look, yeah, they look, yeah, they look yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. They're photo photo worthy, but um, yeah, I think there's still a lot of still a lot of consumer education that needs to happen. Um, yeah, but we are, we are a visual yeah, species, aren't we? Yeah, obviously, that's mm. uh, that's where it should have started. Mm. Um, it should have started with 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 the visual. Instead of the brand organic, because selling organic, I mean, there's a lot of fucking snake oil sellers worldwide. It's not, uh, it's not something that we need to discuss now. It's, it's just chances. It's people that don't believe in, in just doing it for the right reason. It's not the same, but it's sort of similar to the natural wine conversation. There's a lot of people who who say they produce natural wine no, um, from the uh, because they think that's going to it's a it's a shortcut to yeah. a fucking sale. Um, Correct. Yeah. yeah, and, and then, the, and then the, the, the next flight up is full of tartaric and full of enzymes and full of whatever. You, all the bits and pieces, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. whatever. You're obviously on top of a, a of a hill or a mountain, I guess, or it's a. What, would you call it a mountain or a hill? No, it's a hill. Right? A hill. Okay. There's no there's no uh, snow in winter. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hill. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, but but uh, the tractor roll. I've rolled one, and uh, yeah. one of my senior drivers have rolled one. What's more important in terms of uh, what results and what decisions you make with farming? Is it the, the aspect of the vineyard in terms of what direction it faces, the gradient, or is it really just the soil type? Like if one if one vineyard's facing uh, due west and one's facing due south, are you are you farming those different because they 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 face different um, directions and they get different amount of sun and heat and etc. Or are they you do you farm them differently because they have different soil types? The first thing I do normally is get in the tractor and then well, the whole of the porcelain back I had to clear with the brush cutter. And uh, yeah, the radio still worked in the tractor and I just yeah, listen to things of Leon and whatnot and spend a lot of, I think I spend a thousand, yeah, thousand two hundred hours mm. my first few years in, in the one tractor and drive and, and feel the slope before you rip it and get a... Because I think the most important thing for me is um, sun. Uh, we have a lot of sun, and I want to try and farm as close to the sun's path as possible. I don't want to plant anything broadside to the sun. So I want to get as close to the sun running over the hedge, you know, along the road. Yes. Over yeah. The road. yeah, you don't want to be... Uh, and, perpen- uh, you don't want the sun to be perpendicular to the road. Exactly, uh, and then obviously farming on on mountains and hills, erosion and runoff is another another consideration. Probably second most important to me. Uh, I want to cut cut the hill or cut the gradient as softly as possible without rolling tractors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah not, not, a, not a good not a good habit. <laughs> yeah, or aggressively if it needs to. Um, because I've been on, I've been on three wheels and two wheels, yeah, sometimes more than I've been on four. And it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite a thing. But anyway, to me, radiation is the most important thing. Getting, getting, getting the sun on top of the edge, as opposed to on the side, and uh, and it's not always uh, due east west. Sometimes it's better 
I think uh, I read some articles that northwest, southeast is better than okay. east-west. In um, southeast, north, southwest, yeah. northeast is also better than east-west. So hmm. seeing that northwest, southeast, just a couple of degrees, a couple of minutes or a couple of things just north of east, yeah. southwest, east. Um, so better. just, and just find, slightly skewed yeah. to east-west, yeah. Yes, exactly. Because yeah, that's the, the way that the sun is supposed to. But obviously in summer, it's it's further south of that median. And then in winter, it's north. But it definitely does change um, yeah. apart. Uh, yeah, so that's my that's the first thing that I look at and then uh, try and fit the slope with that. Trying to get something that's responsible. Maybe chat to us about the process of when you're harvesting and, and, and what you're doing to the fruit to make that delicious wine. Important about is that it was never supposed to be really a wine. It was, um, it's yeah, amazing afterthought. Anyway, so it's just, I like wine and I like to make it great. And I said, Mark, we should keep a bit of There was a cellar on the farm. The first 2010, 11, 12, 13 was the first year that I actually transported grapes off the farm. Okay. It was the first year that the new planting came into field. So we've always kept, so it was basically just the old the, the old block that was in, in, in fruit. Um, and that was up and down. Um, right. In 2012, I actually decided there was water, there was irrigation, but it was never used. I never irrigated anything in 2010, 11. And 12 and then 13, I decided when it went from three tons to one ton to two tons, it was completely subject to the, to the natural rainfall. And you need a bit more than 450 more rain. So uh, we, we, we put back the irrigation in and I started nursing the plants a bit more and looked after and that was all organic. Yeah, and then just started planting like mad from. 2013, we started, I started introducing a bit more of the younger fruit um, from bits and pieces. The nice thing with this place is it, it's all on the hill. On, on, on the hill. So um, the aspects and uh, the soil types are pretty constant. Um, mm-hmm. It goes from different generations. It is obviously here and there. There's one of those misfire soils where you have one bunch of vine and it has just tops and skin. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we have three different trellising systems as well. We have the normal VSP, poles and wire between 2.7 and 2.5 and then 1.2 into vine. And then bush vines, conventional bush vines, uh, mm-hmm. 2.7 and 1.2 into vine. Um, so most of the farm is like 3,000, 3,300 plants per hectare. And then we have about 15 hectares where it's between 4,400 and 7,000 plants per hectare. And those 7,000 plants are the issue of the, you know, the fine and post. Yeah, so I think um, I think the Afrikaans name is very, a very good one for that. The stuck by Stuck bulky. by bulky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just call it a fancy bush one. Right? Yeah, right, okay. But um, yeah, so I have um, all that, and yeah, it's just interesting for me. So the winery 
Um, it started, we had the shed where the Schoenberg wines were made, and it was the shed all. Everything was there. The tractor, the wine tanks uh, raised in the first year, I raised 2,400 chips in there. Uh, yeah, just fun. Uh, so there's a winery that's not like chicken in here. And yeah, and then uh, 2012, we pulled in the lean to got a few more tanks from, from Bookenotes. And yeah, slowly grew into what it is now. And it's like 45 tons of 24,000 bottles. The recipe is is the same from the beginning. So from day one, I want to do a whole bunch of grapes. Uh, we foot stomped the first seven years and always had a bit of problems with um, RS and the pressing. You know, when you fill a tank and you foot stomping, um, you do like the first half is proper. And then yes. the second half, you start running in your pants. Yeah, and, uh, and then you're just moving it around. You're actually not actually crushing anything. Yeah, then uh, yeah, then you're not really doing any. So we we got a distemmer, not a distemmer, um, got a crusher two years ago, and didn't realize that a crusher always also needs to move at a certain speed to do a mm-hmm. proper job. So we were just bunging in like lug boxes at a time. Okay, and those crusher wheels are. Or spring loaded. So if you put a brick through it, it'll eat it, but it's not going to squish the brick. But yeah, so if you put a whole case through it, it's just going to let it through. It's not it's bunch by bunch through, then it crushes it, you know, nicely and gently. And then this year I've got a, a very simple, it's almost like a um, peristaltic pump, but it's the thing that they use all over the world for, for a whole bunch. Okay. All the clucking. Yeah, it's a very old school thing. Um, you, you can't buy, I don't think you can buy them anymore. It just moves the grapes. And then with the transit, they just push themselves. That's a great success. The other thing that's happened in the 10, 11 years, everything was exactly the same until 2018. 2017, I visited um, Ryan. He was working at uh, Jaume. Um, so they also do whole bunches and they actually have a club pump that takes the grapes into the tank and they use um, the most cap and that's something that I've known about but I've never really thought about using it and just uh, in and got back because um, the thing that is the problem in our cellar is uh, we don't have a lot of space no cellar I suppose to speak to anybody in a winery that's Space is always an issue, always over for your tank. And uh, the one big thing that I always had was with a whole bunch is you fill the tank, you have some of the and the cap sticks out on top of the tank. No um, protection. You know? So it's always a little bit of flies, vinegar flies, and whatnot. And it was never ideal. I mean, they said no cap and all that. And then, yeah, I like to roll and grind. started building in 2018. And that's what I called the first tanks, the merch caps, and all the tanks, and we can do better. I have seven tanks. Um, yeah, so it was just a process. And in the 2018 winter, we've all seven of the tanks from worse to better, the merch caps, and keep the stuff. The ones are getting to the better. There's no more flies. I put more grapes in the tank, and uh, just a win win. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we were 
we used to do nothing in the winery. There's like mm. one or two pump hours a day. Now we drink, yeah. Now, now you're properly doing nothing. <laughs> Except uh, spending a lot of time on the road driving, driving great. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you've got your own bottling line on the, on the farm as well. Um, so it's, everything's in house there, and even the label. Yeah, label is the first one, and now it's full time. It really is the most, some of the, I mean, that's the, obviously the first thing people see when they see a, a bottle of porcelain burger is the label. It's, um, it was one of the most striking things I'd seen for quite a, a while. It does suck you in. Maybe you can sort of tell us about that. Now the label, um, the, I think it's maybe one of the first, first second or third jobs that the young outfit in Turnabot's uh, funny little they don't, they don't exist anymore. But yeah. uh, one of their first gigs, and yeah, that's roughly knocked it out of the park. And uh, I, I'm a farmer. I understand diesel and oil and things like that. And this thing was presented to us in 2000, like two years before Labor was stuck on that bottle. And uh, I think it was like one of those phone calls that Mark in 2009 asked me to come and farm the farm. He's like, oh, you want to use what I just bought? I was like, uh, a printing press. And that was in 2010. I was like, okay. And yeah, the printing press delivered it to the farm and uh, learned to drive it. And so that printing press has no ink in it. I mean, in terms of its uh, the, the front label, it is a, just an impression on the label. Yeah, it's just, uh, I think they call it blind embossing. Okay. Embossing, blind, blind, blind embossing. Okay, cool. I've, I've learned something. Yeah, it just depends what you, what you put on it. You can put a, a normal foil plate that does ink. Yeah, it's just a fantastic machine. And when that runs, how long, how long does it take to do a, like a, a run for a whole vintage of bottles, or do you label them as needed? Uh, I do, I do, I do like, when I have a bit of time, I do like a big run of front levels. Yeah. Because obviously that's the thing that doesn't change. Yes. Um, what we do do is uh, I have um, everybody that visits the farm and wants to buy a case of wine, they have the option of uh, having their own label. So uh, on the back label, you mean? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's the printing, that's the printing plate. And um, that's the foil plate. So I've, um, yeah, I have probably more of them than I have anything else. Um, yeah, part of customers that, that do um, 12 bottles a year. And then, and then uh, all my export clients obviously have their own labels. So those, those I do in batches when, when there's a forecast for a export or a big like wine seller is second with a client. Uh, I'll do, you know, like a big stock run of that. Cool, man. Kelly, thank you, mate. I appreciate um, your time. And, yeah, thanks, Kelly. Yeah. I appreciate it. Oh, good.